Hello, welcome to Multimix, a podcast about multiliteracies. I'm Liam Anderson, and I'm going to be your host for this show. I'm here with William DeHerter, who is the assistant director of the Michigan Tech Multiliteracy Center. Hi, I'm also the assistant for this podcast. Yeah, he's my uh, my, my crony for this this short, short while. Uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about what multiliteracies is today, and we're going to be giving you a little rundown of you know what that word means and what kind of things you can do in the center as well. So uh, stay tuned for some fun facts about that. All right, for this week, we'll be drawing primarily from a book titled Multiliteracies, Literacy, Learning, and the Design of Social Futures. It's by the New London Group. It's edited by Bill Cope and Mary Kalantis. It may help to think of multiliteracies as communication that accounts for different cultures, disciplines, and methods of expression, including written, visual, and spoken forms. So, Liam, what do you think multiliteracies means? Let's see. Multi is many. Literacies is ways of communicating or reading and writing, usually. Mm -hmm. And so that, but I think the key part of this is that there's, is the two plurals. So we have literacies which are multiple ways of reading and writing and um i'm sure that you'll uh, explain what exactly that entails to me in a bit Mm -hmm. uh but before that we have multi so that means that we must have multiple categories of ways of reading and writing sure yeah so it's not multi-literacy it's not literacies it's multi-literacies which is the, (laughs) the distinction that we have to pick apart here all right, so let's explain that. Well, multiliteracies theory uh, proposes that all communicators develop different reading and writing skills for different parts of their lives, right? People typically speak differently to their friends than they do their coworkers or their authority figures. Uh, the New London Group tells us that these differences in communication are markers of different life worlds. That's kind of a scary term. It's a, it's a, it's a philosophy term. Life worlds are just like it's your horizon of experience, right? They're spheres of existence. A person might have a working life, a public life, or a personal life. And these different spheres require different reading and writing skills to communicate effectively. As the London Group phrases it, so this is a direct quote from page uh, 17, uh, we have to be proficient as we negotiate the many life worlds each of us inhabits and the many life worlds we encounter in our everyday lives. So thinking about this term life world, as you said, it's kind of a a philosophical word with a lot of a lot of weight behind it sometimes um what uh can you give like an example of um maybe what what isn't isn't a life world all right so if i'm gonna try to essentialize what a life world is it's just um it's your unexamined existence right so my dog is living the life world of a dog but it's not thinking to itself I'm a dog. <laughs> you you aren't sitting there thinking to yourself, ah, I'm a college student. I am now. All the time. Yeah, not, you are now. Um, uh, but, you know, that's where you're just sitting and you feel like things are normal. That's your life world. And so it sounds to me like this is a concept that you really can't fully summarize in a little 10 second se- sentence. Well, it's more complicated than that. Well, uh, I'm not an expert on this for sure. Um, I think uh, there were some philosophers coming out of the Frankfurt School that dealt with it a lot more intensely. 
Um, and to me, it seems like the, the new London group took this idea of Life World and they wanted to change it because Life World originally is just like, yep, you have your sphere of existence, that's it. And then the new London group is like, no, let's break it down into multiple spheres of existence because we have different personas and different uh, methods of communication that we apply for different facets of our lives. And so that's when they broke it down into this idea of a, a professional life, a public life, and a personal life. Okay, so if I wanted to really simplify it, I could say something along the lines of uh, all of these spheres of existence are just the different kind of contexts in which you communicate. Yeah, it's and a marker for it is like that things are tacit, that things are unspoken in the way that you're communicating with another person. Okay. Right? Um, and as those those uh, those tacit uses of language or uses of register or tone or whatever the markers are uh, change and it's all unspoken, that means that you're shifting into a different sphere, according to the New London Group. Okay, that makes sense. As we all learned pretty early, I think, successful writing is contingent on audience and context. Those change constantly. Multiliteracies allows us to think a little more deeply about how exactly those two forces influence our communication. We all write, read, and speak differently according to our relationship with our audience. We reconstruct and renegotiate our identities as we become more adept at traversing the various speech and discourse communities in our lives. In many cases, these negotiations between skills produce multimodal compositions. Multimodal compositions are projects that incorporate multiple modes of communication simultaneously. The New London Group suggests five different modes of communication, linguistic, visual, gestural, spatial, and audio. Multimodal writing finds advantages in combining architecture, sound, video, and, and text. A multimodal writer might choose to film a video of themselves explaining a certain concept to improve the effectiveness of their message. How the camera shot is framed, the colors used, the speaker's body language and speech, what the room looks like, and what text may appear on the screen are all modal elements that mesh to support the communicative act in some way. So would you say, it sounds by your description, that this is a lot like an art form, that you're thinking a lot about uh, the way different things, so you could say, you know, speech and text go together just like red and blue do in a painting. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one interesting way to put it. It's sort of a rhetorical act, and I believe rhetoric has historically been identified as half science and half art, right? So you try to find ways to scientifically pick apart what works and what doesn't, but at the end of the day, you still have to have a little bit of an artistic sensibility to make it work. Okay, so that sounds to me like that puts uh, that puts rhetoric and multiliteracies in kind of a unique place between science and art because you can quantify and study a fair amount of it just by what how people react to it and how people do it but there's also a lot that's left kind of up in the air that's all subjective and you kind of go by feel with it yeah so a lot of it is like how deeply do you understand your audience how deeply do you understand the forces that are influencing uh, this communication a, a deeper understanding of those things allows you to uh, apply certain decisions onto the communicative act that you're molding, right? If I, if I understand that this person isn't going to understand this word that I want to use, I'm going to either use a different word or try to introduce that word to them. Um, or if I understand that 
uh, I want to give this idea across to this community. Oh, they usually communicate uh, in this genre with this particular set of features. I'm going to have to learn those features and then apply what I want to say uh, into that sort of ready-made box of that genre. Okay, so a lot of it ends up just being translation from your language to your same language, but to different people. So English to English for an engineer, maybe. Yeah, you might call it translation. You might also call it code meshing in some cases where you're just trying to take this experience and make it understood in this in for this community um, or take this uh, set of language and introduce it to this community that uh, doesn't know it. Okay. So uh, how does this all fit into the way the Multiliteracy Center runs? Well, in our center, coaches help writers navigate the expectations of different discourse communities, speech communities, and cultures in their personal, professional, and academic lives, their life worlds. This is primarily achieved through working with writers to understand differences in speech communities, discourse communities, contexts, and genre conventions. It's a subtle but important distinction to say that we do not administer knowledge to writers, but we work with them to understand the boundary features between different communicative forms and situations. When might a video resume be rhetorically advantageous? Uh, what does this particular comment from this instructor mean? What are the unspoken expectations of this writing situation? So would you say um, writing situations are something that overlap and that you, you run into you know, multiple at once? And do you think that that's something that we end up dealing with subconsciously? Or do you think that it's something that we do have to actively learn and be conscious of? So... In terms of like it being subconscious, I, I would say that the word that is used is the word tacit, which means that we aren't we aren't externalizing it to another person as we're doing it necessarily. Like we may know these things, we may we may pick up on these patterns, but we may not realize what they are. Like you can pick, we have a bookshelf over here with some books on it. You can pick any book off that bookshelf, and I can guarantee you that there are going to be a set of conventions applied to it. Um, the first page will always be on the right. The margins will always be at least a half inch. Um, the letting in between the lines of text will always be two points higher than the 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 actual font size. So uh, you can pick any type of writing and there's going to be some conventions around it. And those conventions usually come out of just the act of replicating this type of communication over and over and over again. That process is called typification. So because you've mentioned that all of these understandings tend to be tacit, do you think that we can become better communicators by consciously understanding these contexts that we're speaking in? Oh, for sure, definitely. Um, as a matter of fact, it's, it's not until you realize where these boundaries are that you can get really good at not only replicating those documents in that particular way, given those boundaries, but also rhetorically deciding when those boundaries aren't suitable for what you want to do, and you want to push them, and you want to make an anti-genre move and make your document uh, look a little bit different to achieve some sort of effect. Okay, so, you know, to quote Bill Watterson, you've got to know the rules pretty well to break every single one. There you go. There okay. you go. All right. Well, I uh, hope you uh, understand a lot more about multiliteracies than you did before you started listening. And uh, tune in next time for we're going to be talking about some more uh, changes of convention. We're going to be talking about some uh, medical language laws in Britain, which I know doesn't sound all that exciting, but trust me, we'll make it cool. 
see you later. This has been Multimix. Multimix is recorded and edited by Liam Anderson. This episode's script was written by Multiliteracy Center Assistant Director William DeHerter.